Welcome, everyone, to the Inquisitive Introvert Podcast. I'm joined today by Jason Kirst. Jason, I wanted to, to interview you because I thought you were really interesting. You're the co-founder of a company called Grow, a financial service firm, and it's geared towards millennials. And our generation is just buried in debt, and we're trying to figure out how to manage our money. So I thought you would be a perfect person to sort of interview. My first question is, what made you interested in finance? I kind of have a little bit of a cliche story. When I was 12 years old, I had a bar mitzvah, and I got gifts probably totaling to the sum of ten to $12,000, which at that time, at that age, was a huge amount of money for me. And I knew I didn't want to spend it. I knew I wanted to save towards larger goals and purposes. I, even at that age, I had certain dreams and things that I wanted to do with my life. However, all the advice that I got from family and friends was not credible and uh, pretty terrible advice, either invest in this type of company or invest in that type of company. So what I really did was I started researching. That was when like uh, the financial resources on the internet were starting to really take hold. And you could, it wasn't Google at the time, but I think it was like AltaVista and AskJeeves.com that were the major search engines of the day. And I spent a lot of time on those search engines, basically just reading what other people had to say. Started uh, reading a bunch of books. And then a few years in, what happened was that I grew up in a town called Syosa, New York, which was right around the corner from the offices of Stratton Oakmont, which was recently portrayed in the film Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill. And a lot of my friends' parents worked for that firm. They were brokers at that firm, including some of the main characters portrayed in the movie. And at that time, there was a lot of other types of financial schemes going on in the market. And it kind of made me extremely skeptical of taking advice from anyone else. So I continued to kind of push my education, my journey to understanding how the markets work, how the theory of finance and risk and return works. And throughout my learning experience, I developed a passion for it. And how does it work? I know that's sort of like a basic question, but for people that are just educating themselves on finance, how does investing work? And how much should people start investing if they're our age, 27, 28, 29, and looking to grow their finances while we're still in the student debt crisis that we have going on? Yeah. Hey, when you break it down to the most simplest components, the most simple components, is the relationship between risk and reward. If you make an investment, what you're doing is that you're giving up money today or in other terms, consumption today, for someone else to use for some other purpose. And depending on the certainty and the probability of you getting that money back with potential gains that would factor and uh, make up for the time value of that money lost, you demand some type of required return on that. So basically, at the end of the day, or in its most simplest form, investing is taking on some uncertainty over time in order to shift your consumption from today to tomorrow. And because of that uncertainty, investors will require a rate of return. Now, the idea that investors should go through in most cases, and I'm talking now about investors that are investing over the long term with a longer term time horizon, is to substitute short-term uncertainty for long-term reward. A lot of people think of investing in financial products and in capital markets as a risky investment. And in a way, it is because in the short term, markets go up, markets go down. In 2008, the market fell almost by half. In the Great Depression, it fell a lot also. In the 80s, it fell a lot. In the early 2000s, it fell a lot. Even this past month, in the beginning of February, the market fell about 8 or 9%. It's volatile. But over time, at least historically, what it's shown is that that volatility is short-term in nature. So the idea that young 
people really have to grasp in order to really take control of their financial future is that they have to be willing to take a short-term risk in order for a long-term reward. And they have to understand the difference between a short-term risk, meaning market volatility, the odds of the potential for the markets to go up and down over short periods of time, and long-term risk, which is wipe out of capital, losing money permanently, not being able to get that money back. They're completely two different things. It's very easy in the long run to prevent and to protect against long-term risk. It's very difficult and costly to protect against short-term risk, which is why investors with a long-term time horizon, such as millennial generation, have a huge advantage in today's market. Jason, what would you say is the biggest mistake millennials make when they're trying to uh, invest in something? Is it lack of patience or just a lack of knowledge in terms of building their finances? You know what? A year and a half, two years ago, I probably would have said something different. What I probably would have said was saving. Statistics show that millennials save less than other generations. And what we save, we tend to save in ultra low risk types of areas, such as checking accounts, even under the bed, because they're largely distrustful of financial institutions. A lot of us came into adulthood in the midst of the last financial crisis, where large banks basically got caught swindling money out of its clients in a way, basically using clients' money to take excessive risk for uh, compensation bonuses. But Today, what I've been seeing, especially with this Bitcoin phenomenon and this tech market, is that kind of a fear of missing out, where millennials, which in so many aspects of life are proven independent thinkers, they're highly educated. We're the most educated generation in history. More of us went to college than anyone else ever in any part of the world. And that normally leads to independent thought, where we make decisions based on our own research and our own merits. However, in the past two years or so, what I've noticed is that there's a lot of groupthink going on. There's a lot of people that are making decisions based on things that they read on social media, based on what their friends are doing, based on the short-term rewards that we've heard about or seen um, from others. And most significantly over the past few years has been the Bitcoin uh, bull run. But it's also happened in the stock market also, where once a very cautious group of people are now starting to become more complacent. What's it called? A perfect example of this, aside from Bitcoin, is people investing in Snapchat which is a company that many people use. They're very aware of it. And most of the independent retail investors that are investing in Snapchat are millennials. And there's a reason for that, that people that have been in the market for a while and that understand the fundamentals of companies, when they dive into Snapchat, they don't see much that justifies its exorbitantly high price. And therefore, they either stay away or they bet against it whereas you have a lot of millennials that are putting more money in. So I think that the fear of missing out is something that those have to protect themselves against. At the end of the day, our brains aren't designed to make money. They're designed for survival. And we have certain biases that have been built up, cognitive biases that make us make terrible investment decisions. For instance, loss aversion or it feels how it feels twice or three times maybe even more worse to lose than it does to win for instance let's say you, you go to a casino you're playing blackjack let's say you win two thousand dollars but most people they win a few thousand dollars and blow it on something they don't need because you don't really feel like you deserve it and it doesn't really hit them hit endorphins as much as we expected it 
too. Whereas if you lose $10,000, they're counting the amount of hours that you worked for that money. They're going into a deep depressional spiral. Some of them go on tilt and completely lose their logical method of thought. And another bias is something called framing. And this is something that is extremely important now with an overpriced market. An example of this is Bitcoin, for instance. Right now, I think it's trading around $10,000, a little bit less. And if you ask any millennial, if Bitcoin dropped to $1,000, would you buy it? Would you think it was a good investment? And in my experience, at least, almost everyone would say, yeah, of course. Like, the only way that I know Bitcoin is like 10 to 17,000 in that trading range. Because that's what it's been when people have really started to acknowledge it. But how do we know that Bitcoin is a good investment even at $1,000? How do we know that even at $100 that you can invest? How do we know that even at $1? It's an incredibly risky investment. And the reason that we think that it is, is framing. It's our initial expectation of it at a certain value. We derive our opinion based on the change from that base state. So if you're in the supermarket, let's say you have no idea what cereal is. The first cereal you saw was $1,000, and the second one you saw was $900. You probably think the $900 cereal box is a good buy. However, it's cereal. <laughs> so it's not a good buy. That's something that I think that millennials really need to focus on and not specifically fear of missing out, but really understanding how their brain is processing decisions based on how the brain works and how finance is triggered. There's a great book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Skarsky. He's basically like the founder of behavioral economics and really dives deep into all the different cognitive biases that we have as human beings. And there's other books. I think there's a book called Your Brain on Money. It's kind of an advancement on Kahneman's work, and it's a great read. And in my book, The Millennial Advantage, I devote, I think, two and a half chapters to behavior because it's such an important aspect of managing money. You could read Warren Buffett's shareholder letters, and so much of it has to do with behavior. And having a process and not falling for what your brain tells you to do. Because at the end of the day, investing in a way is a zero-sum game, where if you want to do better than average, someone else has to do worse than average. And are you going to be the one that is on the better half of that seesaw, or are you going to be the one that's lower? That's really up to you. It's in your control. And Jason, I know one thing that I hear a lot of our generation sort of speak about when we first start working in the real world, quote unquote, is learning how to pick their investments. You know, you get to work, you do your orientation, and you have to sign up for like your 401k. And we're just like, what the hell are we doing? Like, what do all these numbers mean and stocks and bonds and things of that nature? So I guess, what is your best advice for people that are trying to manage their 401k, like just get started with, with savings? I know you spoke about long-term and short-term um, investments. Is What should be their first step? Should it be reaching out to a financial advisor or just educating themselves? Or what, what's the best process? So education, definitely. Reaching out to a financial advisor, it depends on who you reach out to. And that's as honest as anyone must mention it. There's a lot of financial advisors out there that if someone reaches out to them, we have a job, we have a family to feed. A lot of financial services firms are not designed to make money off of millennials and off of early savers. And therefore, their workers and their advisors that work for them are kind of forced to provide these type of services that millennials don't need and they have to charge for those services. In many cases, they're ultra expensive for what it is. However, there are effective advisors out there that target millennials and they do so because we don't have those type of impediments being on their back. A lot of these advisors, they're on their own. They launch their own RAA firm. They're feeling the advisors. And because of the lack of overhead, they're able to help young people out for a fair price. 
So if you could reach out to those advisors, in many cases, it's a huge benefit. However, it all starts with education. Your 401k, it may seem complicated at first, but at the end of the day, a 401k is a very simple type of thing. And I think it's very beneficial for investors. And the reason kind of why it's there is that there are limited options. Almost all 401ks have less than 25 investments. By law, I think they're required to have over like 15 or something, but most record keepers don't allow advisors to put too many investment options in there because that leads to lack of decision. The one thing about a 401k that a lot of people don't tell you that I highly suggest is that there's something called a target date fund. And a target date fund is kind of like an all-inclusive type of investment option that you select and then other people do the work for you. However, it's a ripoff. And most financial advisors, when they advise on 401ks, they'll say, oh, just invest in the target date fund because it removes their work from the equation. But almost every 401k has some type of advisor attached to it, that it's their job. They're getting paid to offer you advice, the participant of that 401k. While many of them don't want employees and participants reaching out to them, it's their job to answer questions for you. So those target date funds in most cases are much more expensive than the other investment options. And over time, that could really cause a dent in your retirement funds. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases for someone that contributes the maximum amount each year. I've seen it. So what I suggest is that talk to HR or who's ever in charge of the 401k at your company, or it should be on the statement. Someone's name and a phone number should be on that statement. Reach out to them and say, hey, I work for this company. I'm a participant in the 401k. I would like to talk to you about putting together a portfolio based on my current needs, my age, my risk tolerance, things like this. They're required to help you for free. It's their job. One thing I know that's also very popular, a debate amongst our generation, is home ownership. Do you think it's a good investment? Can you always bank on real estate for giving you sort of a long-term return? Or what are your thoughts on that? This is a billion-dollar question right here. In my opinion, in today's economy, real estate has never been more uncertain. In one way, it could be the best investment over the next 50 years. And in another way of thinking, it could be one of the worst. So it's difficult. And it also is based on reaching where someone lives. However, and it's also based on investor psychology. Many investors are much more comfortable with, I'm not saying that people should just do what they're comfortable with, but in money, if investing in the markets aren't going to allow you to sleep at night and you have a limited amount of money and it's between either a house or investing in the stock market, in many cases, a home is a better investment because you could dwell in it also. It really depends on your lifestyle. I'm talking about buying a home as your main dwelling rather than buying a home as an investment property here. But I think home ownership is one of those things in America and across the world that is one of the most rewarding things about life. Owning your own, knowing that it's yours, not having to deal with the landlord, being able to make changes on it, being able to design it how you want, being able to plant a garden outside if you have a yard, being able to live in it and just know that it's yours. And I don't think return, risk and return in that sense should take away from that in many ways a part of the American dream and that's more important than anything else. You're obviously very disciplined and what sort of daily practices can people of our generation do to sort of be a little bit more financially disciplined and what sort of processes should we start building in place to organize our finances? 
Yeah, this is something that we really highly stress is that at Grow, we believe that process is the most important part of anyone's financial foundation. The reason being is that by following a strict process, you're not able to make emotional decisions and decisions that are caused by cognitive bias because this process is laid out beforehand to a certain extent. And the best way to follow a process is doing things daily and continuously, and that builds up habits. And over time, those actions compound on one another and lead to a tremendous result. So the best thing you can do or want to do is read. Digest content. Digest valuable content, whether it's through reading, whether it's through through video and YouTube, which they're starting to be a little bit more financial resources on these type of platforms through the, the visual medium. And to every day, devote some time to educating yourself about something. There's places that break down financial concepts by topic, personal finance at least. And by reading 10 minutes a day on these topics, over a year or two, you could definitely become an expert. And this is knowledge that will pay monetarily pay off. It's not like knowledge, and I'm not downing other types of knowledge, like creative writing or something that is more artistic. I'm all for that type of knowledge. But financial knowledge will literally save you thousands, if not more, over the course of your lifetime. Think about someone that has a really high income. If they're able to manage your money correctly over the course of 50, 60, 70 years, that can mean millions and millions of dollars more in the bank. And it's worth it. It's worth the time. It's really not that complicated of a thing. The reason why it's complicated for most people is that there's so much emotion behind it because the risk of and the collateral that's in the pot here is all of your hard work. As soon as you remove that emotional component from it, which you do by educating yourself and feeling more confident with your decisions, you realize that it's really pretty simple. And if you can get to that point, that's golden. And Jason, who are your sort of financial mentors? Who did you look up to growing up? I know you mentioned that growing, you grew up in the area where the Wolf of Wall Street sort of employed a lot of people in your neighborhood and you saw how that went. So who did you look up to for the right advice? I know you did a lot of self-education, but was there any external people that you reached out to? Well, yeah, not even so much personal people, but other investors that most people on Wall Street look up to. And they look up to these people because they know that they're right. And these people don't even say that they're right. We don't say, do this, not do that. We provide a framework of independent thought that others could learn from and others could develop their own patterns of independent thought. And most people are people that you probably know, such as Warren Buffett. Talk about a guy that gives his knowledge in the public. He writes a shareholder letter every year that is extremely detailed and talks about his investment protocol and his decisions and his beliefs. He's interviewed on Bloomberg and CNBC hundreds of hours from YouTube this stuff and hear him speak. Another one that I consider to be one of the leading educators in finance and this guy named Howard Marks. He's the chief investment officer of a firm in California called Oak Tree Capital. And Howard Marks, he's released a few books. One of them is called The Most Important Thing. And that's something that I suggest every single person that's interested in finance pick up. Even if you're not interested in finance, the philosophy behind it and just his train of thought is really inspiring, really objective. And it's great to learn from someone like that who's also had tremendous career success. Ray Dalio just released a book. Ray Dalio is the CEO of one of the largest hedge funds, Bridgewater Capital. And he released a book, I believe it's called Principles. And again, these are really successful people that are starting to give back to the general public. And those are the people that are really the champions of the financial industry. I wouldn't look up to people like 
some other investors where they're making a lot of money, but we don't give back education. We, like Steve Collins from SEC Capital, things like this. He makes a ton of money throughout his career, but doesn't really inform people his methods. And of course, there's reasons for that also. He's more of a trader rather than an investor. But there are a group of incredible investors out there that have a proven track record of their brilliance that devote so much of their time to educating individuals on their process and on the ways to think of as, as an investor. And, and those people are huge. And hey, Tony Robbins is trying, uh, the personal life coach, Tony Robbins, he's trying to take over the throne in this regard. And I think he's doing a pretty good job. Yeah. I don't agree with everything in his book, but his part of the market is so broad because Every type of person goes to those events. His target market really spans across America and the international borders, where a guy like Howard Marks only targets others in the financial space. Tony Robbins is kind of writing content for everyone, and it's incredibly difficult to present the most objective information when it's for everyone, or the most valuable information, I think, that, that word objective, when it's for everyone. But he does a really good job at it. So his books are also really good resources. So basically, like Ray Dalio, Howard Marks, especially Warren Buffett, Tony Robbins, those are all great people to learn from. And in my book, The Millennial Vantage, most of it isn't coming from me. I believe in this stuff, of course, but most of this I learned from other people. I'm kind of curating an experience from the expertise of people like Warren Buffett and Howard Marks. I have at least 25, 30 quotes of Howard Marks in my book, and probably at least 15 or 20 of Buffett and a few from Ray Dalio. So the information's there. It's for each individual to go out and get. You're exactly Jason. I wanted to know, like, what inspired you to write the book? I know that um, you're obviously very passionate about financial education, but it takes a lot to write a book. So what made you sort of take that leap? Was it just spreading information and educating people of our generation? And what was your favorite chapter in the book? Like I said, I read a lot of books. So really what taught me finance more so than actually doing going out and making mistakes. And I definitely had made some mistakes investing in an early age. And I learned some of those mistakes. But in a way, books have been the most valuable resource. So I always wanted to write something and give back what all the dedication that I put in at that same time. But personally, it was just good timing also. I lived in Israel for a few years. I was coming back. I was waiting. My life in a way, my professional career was a little bit inland bug. So I had the time where I wasn't working that I wanted to, like, I'm not the type of person that sits home and watches TV. So I started writing and the writing turned into something more and it turned into something more. And every day I'd be in the library 10 to 12 hours a day. After a few months, there was what basically was the beginning of a really good long, piece of long-form content. And when I started working full-time for this large financial firm on the weekends, I would put in hours and at night. And over the course of a few years, it just came together. And during that time, it was also incredibly helpful because I was working for a huge financial firm, and I was an advisor, and I was managing the Chicago financial office. And I was going in, and I was meeting with clients mostly older than me, uh, mostly baby boomers and the generation older than them. And I was trying to help them understand why I was a better option than someone maybe closer to their age. And when you're going in as a 26, 27-year-old financial advisor talking to someone with multi-million dollars that's in their 60s, in a way, you need to prove your credibility. And in my opinion, there's no better way to prove your credibility than having a published work. So that became a major incentive also because as a young advisor, I needed something that I can kind of leverage to prove my credibility to these potential clients. Sort of along those lines, Jason, what is sort of the one thing that you want people to get out of your book? Um, as I alluded to, yeah, as I alluded to kind of throughout this conversation, 
the most important part of managing your money and investing in capital investments or investments that where prices are justified through a bunch of different participants, like a capital market, where there's many different investors that, based on their collective opinion, justify some certain fair price for it, you really have to understand risk and reward. And to understand risk and reward, you kind of have to understand where stock price comes from and where bond prices come from and what affects those prices and how investors really make returns. And basically, the, the dynamics of the market system. And uh, I think that my book really focuses on that, how the markets work on from a bird's eye view, a 360 view of that market system. It's not just found in the stock market, it's found in other things also. And to really have that understanding of it, you really have to understand risk and reward and what makes a stock risky, what makes it a good investment. You can have a very good company like Google or Amazon. Amazon's crushing it right now. Almost anyone in this world would say that Amazon is a great company. Are they a good investment? That's a completely different question. The same thing with a company like Facebook. The same thing with a company like ExxonMobil, Walmart. Like a lot of these companies where it makes a good investment is not the same. It may correlate somewhat with what makes a good company. And Jason, sort of an entrepreneur question for you. What do you hope for Grow in the future? I know you guys are relatively new, but what are your expectations for your company, uh, Grow? Yeah, hey, our overall expectation is to create the most value as possible in the millennial marketplace, basically to help our generation make informed investment decisions for a reasonable cost. And in the past, we've really focused on financial planning, on helping millennials handle debt management, uh, paying back student loans, creating budgets, making sure that on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis that they're in the plus and that they're doing what's optimal for them in their financial life. However, as millennials grow older, their investment capital begins to increase. They're saving more, and that requires a different level of service also, more on the investment side, which is kind of where I came from. So over the next few months, we're actually releasing a new component of our company, and we're calling it an investment concierge service. And what it is, is basically kind of going back to the roots in the traditional financial service industry rather than moving forward, but doing so in a very high-tech way where we're kind of allowing our clients to make some of the decisions or all the decisions, basically allowing them to manage their own money. And then hiring us, we're just protecting their backs, making sure that we don't mess up and they don't make mistakes. And then if they need us on the side for anything else, those services kind of come a la carte. So basically, for a really cheap price, we're willing to come aboard and help you make your own investment decisions by watching over you and making sure that you're not making any major mistakes. And we think that there's a major need for that type of service, and we're hoping to satisfy that need. Where can people find more information about Grow and about you? So our website is the best resource. It's www.growplanning.com. You can just Google it also, and articles that I've read and published on other sites will be up there. I write on Investopedia, Financial Advisor Magazine, Bloomberg, Huffington Post, some other areas. So, um, honestly, Google, and Google's probably the best option. You can follow us on social media, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Um, our Twitter feed kind of got kind of stepped away from that for a bit just because the character cat became it's very hard to kind of educate people through the limited character count and I got kind of sick I was having four or five tweets and one out of four two out of four (laughs) and all this stuff 
So we kind of leverage in there LinkedIn, Facebook for more medium form content. In your book, uh, Millennial Advantage is on Amazon, right? Yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can go on if, if you want a free electronic copy. Feel free to email me, uh, jason at growplanning.com. I'll be more than glad to send you a free PDF or EPUB version. Um, the EPUB file is the file that you upload to a Kindle. But the hardcover book, if you want to purchase that, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Great. Thank you so much, Jason. You were awesome. I really appreciate it. I learned so much, so I really thank you for taking time out to speak with me. 